Welcome to Stateless, a mini-series podcast aiming to spotlight the stories and livelihood of refugees in Hong Kong. By making their voices heard, we aim to raise awareness of this community and bridge the cultural gaps. I'm Anin Dong, and this podcast is brought to you alongside my team, Farah Wong, Stephanie Mazzini, and this episode's host, Tiffany Chan. In this episode, we'll dive into the legal perspectives and challenges for refugees with Patricia Ho, a prominent lawyer in this field. This episode contains graphic references to sexual abuse, violence, and torture, which some listeners may find triggering. Stay tuned till the end to learn more about how you can support the refugee community. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Patricia. It's so great to have you here with us today. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me. Um, so I am at the moment, I'm a lawyer uh, practicing in Hong Kong, and I have been practicing in the field of uh, public interest law, uh, some would say uh, relating to the area of human rights um, for the last ooh, like 15 years or so, uh, 15, 16 years. And um in the last few years, I've actually been um, expanding my area a little bit. Uh, I started moving into, into the academic field as well. Um, so I'm teaching some students on uh, how to practice law. Um, so clinical education type of thing. Um, and then the other thing is I've also started a nonprofit um, that's um, assisting vulnerable populations in Hong Kong. Right. That's interesting. Um, the nonprofit you were talking about is Hong Kong Dignity Institute, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay. So actually, that's really amazing um, because you having a law background, there's so many different paths you can pursue in a career sense. Um, so what was the reason you decided to work with like refugees and asylum seekers in Hong Kong in the first place? Well, to be completely honest, um, it's sort of by accident. Um, <laughs> I was uh, really trying hard to figure out what area of law I should get into. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, most things I found really boring. Um, <laughs> except when I was in university, I came across um, the human rights subject and I just found it a lot more close to home. Um, in other words, I just found that the things we were studying were more relatable to a day-to-day problems that I read in the news. And those are things that um, uh, interest me a lot more. Um, And, you know, when I was in my final year of university, one subject particularly gripped me, and that's the subject of human trafficking. Um, I started diving into that field a lot, and I couldn't you know, shake off um, the needs of individuals for help uh, in that field. Um, And so I actually really wanted to develop um, a career in that area. I was really, you know, ready to dedicate my my life's work to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then strangely, when I got back to Hong Kong, and this is, I was studying in London at the time, when I got back to Hong Kong, everyone told me there was no such thing as human trafficking in Hong Kong. but there was something close enough. And that was, there, there was a law firm that did work for refugees. And I thought, well, I'll take anything close enough. And, and that's how I got to it. Um, and, you know, in the beginning years, I was actually really doubting uh, whether I should bother with human trafficking anymore because, you know, it seemed really uh, worthwhile and interesting doing uh, work um, assisting refugees. 
Um, but, you know, the strange thing is um, approximately uh, seven or eight years into my work with refugees, I actually came across the first uh, victim of human trafficking via, via that field. So, you know, it did actually bring me to uh, work in the area I wanted after all. All along. I think earlier on, you mentioned the initial struggle you had thinking whether you made the right decision focusing in this area of law. So what got you motivated in this journey of working with refugees and asylum seekers here in Hong Kong? You know, I think it was just always the need of the people that uh, I worked with. Um, you know, right from the beginning, I um, at, the at the time, I started in about 2006. And at the time, the number of refugees in Hong Kong is a lot lower than now. Um, and everyone I came across had um, a really, um, just, just a real story behind, you know, every person I come across. And, you know, whether that be somebody who suffered from serious religious persecution, um, you know, to somebody who... Uh, was persecuted for being in the wrong political party, um, to domestic violence, um, all, all sorts of things. And, you know, with every story, I was dealing with so much behind each client that I come across. And I really treasured that. It was, it was an experience that, that was, was so precious because not only was I able to help others, but they were exposing me to um, a very broad worldview that I don't think I would ever have if I weren't practicing in this area. Um, and then, of course, I have a tremendous sense of satisfaction as well. So, you know, I don't like to paint my work always in, in, in the light of me giving, giving, giving. But, um, you know, it, it's very fulfilling for myself. So that's probably the main reason, ultimately, why. I stuck with them. But if we're talking about longevity, uh, one thing that I strongly believed in from the beginning until now is that, you know, as I assist um, individuals, I know that they need persistent uh, representation. You know, so many people in their lives come and go and they really need people to stick there with them. So if they have to keep going to different professionals to help them again and again and again and retell the story again and again. I know it's so painful to them. So I really saw the need to stick it through with them, you know, and, and I suppose that's why the longevity. Mm, I see. That's really motivating for um, all of us listening as well. So um, we understand that you provide like legal strategic advice for NGOs, refugees and asylum seekers. So how mm. has that experience been actually working on the legal side to defend the rights of these minority groups, specifically in Hong Kong? It's definitely been challenging. Um, and, and I think in many ways, whenever you're representing a minority group, it's always going to be challenging, right? Um, when I started representing refugees, um, the environment was very different from the environment now. At the time, I remember whenever I tell my family, friends, or anyone on the streets, you know, just explaining about my work, and I just say, oh, you know, I, I represent refugees. Generally, 95% of the time, the response I get would be, what, refugees? Are there any refugees in Hong Kong? 
Uh, and I'll say, yes, yes, of course. You know, they come from all over the world. Um, they come from Africa, from Southeast Asia. And I, I go on to explain a little bit about the background to them. And it tends to be quite eye-opening for them. And, and they, they find that interesting. Um, but you fast forward a couple of years um, into my work. And suddenly everything changed in Hong Kong. I tell people um, I work for, I represent refugees. And immediately the response would be, oh, you know, all the other people who are, um, you know, economic migrants and taking up work in Hong Kong or people who I read in the uh, press are are committing a lot of criminal activities. Um, Oh, I hear that they're all uh, fake uh, claimants. You know, I hear that none of them are real. There's a lot of that. So, you know, the entire environment in Hong Kong really started changing. And I think this was this came about because, um, you know, at at certain point uh, some years ago, um, there was a lot of new uh, propaganda that started from uh, political parties that started painting refugees in a negative light. Um, and I, 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 you know, whether that was right or wrong is one thing, but of course it does mean that the environment was just so much more difficult to operate in. It's not just about the general public, right? Because of course this type of um, perception affects judges' minds, adjudicators' minds, immigration officers' minds. Um, everybody who touches this field, they, they have, tend to have that type of backdrop in their minds. And so it means that when I'm uh, representing them legally, I face much more of an uphill battle. You know, it's like I have to convince everyone each time I represent an individual. No, he is not an eco- he or she is not an economic migrant. No, he is not looking to steal jobs. Um, no, he's not just a criminal. Um, there are real issues that they face. You know, they might face um, death if they're sent back home. Um, you know, and there's just so much that I have to actually compensate for and explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, I can't say that their perceptions all wrong, right? Because, you know, while of course there are genuine uh, asylum seekers and refugees who need help, the truth is that um, uh, over the years, more and more asylum seekers have come, and I would argue personally that more and more people are coming because the Hong Kong government's not been fast enough to assess people's claims. And so a lot of people just ended up realizing that if you just make a claim, you'll be able to stay in Hong Kong for years on end. When news like that got out around Southeast Asia, um, so many people came, um, even if they're economic migrants. I mean, there was one time when I recall there were over 2,000 Vietnamese uh, refugees um, in Hong Kong, and you think, well, there's no civil war in Vietnam anymore. What's happening? Why are there so many Vietnamese refugees? And you 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 look into the details, and you realize actually, a lot of these people are conned by traffickers to come to Hong Kong to work, um, and they're not actually looking to come as refugees at all. And then separately from that, there were lots of domestic helpers who somehow was misled by friends or various um, busybodies that uh, if they wanted to stay in Hong Kong, they should just make USM claims uh, or or torture claims, which is basically the claim that people make in Hong Kong uh, as asylum seekers. And so you actually have, uh, again, at one point, several thousand uh, Filipino or Indonesian uh, asylum seekers which of course bumped up the numbers, 
of false claimants. They all failed, of course. But, you know, it's got that that's got nothing to do with real ones. But when judges, when people come across cases like that, they slowly get the perception, oh, hey, it looks like everyone's a false claimant. What am I doing here? I'm just wasting my time looking to protect people. None of them actually need protecting. So yeah, there's a lot of these issues that we have to work with. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Right. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of complication in this. You mentioned that refugees needing representation throughout. Can you walk us through the legal process for a refugee seeking asylum in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, um, the the processes uh, have been changing um, from the beginning when I started work until now. Um, In the past, if somebody comes to Hong Kong looking to establish their refugee status, they used to go to the UNHCR office um, and the UNHCR would actually process their claims. And if if, if they're given uh, recognition, then the Hong Kong government would allow them to stay in Hong Kong until UNHCR relocates them to another country for for long-term settlement. And if they fail, then the Hong Kong government would be removing them back to their country of origin. Now, this has developed, and and I will cut to the chase, I will get into the legal reasons why it developed in this way, but ultimately, um, the decision-making body um, changed and it's now the Hong Kong government. So all claims made in Hong Kong nowadays will be processed by uh, the Hong Kong authorities. Now, specifically, the system is that there's two tiers. They first go to the immigration department to make their claims. They go through an interview system or process where they meet immigration officers. And if they fail in that, they have an opportunity to lodge an appeal. Now, then there's this tribunal in Hong Kong. It's called the uh, Non-Reformant Review Board. And um, this this board, this tribunal, um, assesses their their claims um, afresh just to see whether they would agree or disagree with immigration's decision. And um, then, yeah, that's basically the decision they have to go by. Ultimately, if they fail in, in all of these processes, to these two stages, they some might opt to uh, lodge a judicial review to challenge um, the legality of the refusals. So in that way, the process can actually um, drag on for false claimants or unfortunately lengthen further for genuine claimants. Um, but yeah, that, that's more or less the, the process. Um, you know, in the past, this process can take a very long time. I had clients who went through these processes for over 10 years. Um, there, there are some who, who go through it m- with more time. But then time went on, uh, the system improved. Um, and sometimes it can be as short as just a few months, um, especially if it's outrightly um, that there's no merits in the case. They can get thrown out quite quickly. Mm. Yeah, I think the difficulty is just, you know, looking at the way that things have improved. Obviously, they're looking to streamline and all of that uh, along the years. The difficulty is ensuring that while they streamline and fast track the processes, that they actually still provide enough opportunities and, and a chance for genuine claimants to properly establish their cases. 
Mm. Yeah, I think you mentioned um, you work with like several clients throughout the whole process um, before and after the reform. Are there any like client cases that you think have been like memorable in your career as like a human rights lawyer? So many um, and so many for different reasons. Mm. But um, I can tell you one which led me to set up Dignity Institute, actually. Um, one of the cases I think I can think of is, is a, a case concerning a family. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when the individuals, I won't get into where they're from or all that just protects their identities. But, you know, the, the parents um, basically gave me very brief details about why they couldn't go back to their countries. And they, they gave me, in some sense, some strange, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, details, like nitty gritty details about torture, tortures they've endured. For example, um, for the female rapes, uh, gang rapes, for the male, um, you know, stories that he was actually put on a torture table, like you would see in movies, you know, people with tools scraping different parts of your body, cigarette butts, and, and all sorts of horrific torture thing, uh, torture techniques being performed on him. Um, and I would read lots and lots of these details, right? And so, and when you look at the level of detail that's provided, there is no doubt at all that these things happen to them. Uh, but w- what was very convincing to me was the way they told their story. Um, you know, several times when the lady told me about the rapes, she would shake violently, violently in her chair, in a rocking position. And you just know that the thought of these experiences, the flashbacks, um, trigger some very deep response uh, in her. Um, uh, you know, it's a bit movie-like for me, you know, to see some extreme psychiatric uh, symptoms being demonstrated. Um, and as for the, the man, when he talks about torture and so on, um, he would just pass out faint. Um, and you know, I've, those were some of the most violent um, reactions that I've seen before. Um, and when because of these things, you just, for me, I have no doubt what they're saying is true. You know, you can't make up this type of reaction. Mm. Um, and so I know they have something there and know they have a genuine fear. But then when I ask them why, because I, it, you know, I can't connect the dots. I can't quite understand why it is that they have these fears. And um, they just, they're unable to tell me. They just say, you know, political issues generally. And it took me years, years and years, like I'm talking um, some eight to 10 years of knowing them to actually get to the bottom of realizing that they don't feel safe to tell me the true reason. They don't feel like they're given sufficient assurances and protections of confidentiality and so on. Uh, and they also physically could not cope with telling me everything, you know, without passing out and having episodes. So it took me um, figuring out the, what the problem is, figuring out how to work with um, mental health experts, like counselors in his case, to actually jointly discuss all the issues, jointly address his concerns, jointly teach him techniques to talk about all this, to finally figure out what the reason was. And when I finally got it, 
A, I understood why on earth he could never tell me before because I understood it was, you know, top, top secret. Um, and B, you know, it, it helped me understand, um, you know, all, all of the symptoms demonstrated, why it was needed for us to use an interdisciplinary method to get to the bottom of this to help him. And the good news that I can share is that um, they've been given protection now and, and they're in another country. But yeah, that entire experience was very enlightening to me. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really encouraging to know that now they're protected. And I think it's um, you also mentioned earlier that this is the, this case is also the reason why you founded um, Hong Kong Dignity Institute, HKDI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like I saw that HKDI runs in a very interesting service model to provide immediate legal and, as you mentioned, mental health support to your clients mm-hmm. at one time and in one space by connecting mm-hmm. them with the right organizations. Do you mind sharing a bit more about this service model and some examples? Examples of how this has really helped your clients. Yeah, sure. You know, just just start from the individuals, right? And the case I talked about was one case. There were various other ones with similar types of problems. But what you get is, um, you know, out there, generally, when you access legal services, you present your problem, and then the lawyer analyzes your problem and delivers a solution, right? Mm-hmm. The thing about this this particular population, refugees population, and you get similar issues in the trafficked victims field or some other vulnerable communities. You know, they, they don't necessarily uh, have the ability to sit there and just present the problem to you. Uh, sometimes, like what I talked about, they simply cannot. And it takes a lot of um, sensitivities, um, understanding about men- mental health issues, um, social issues, um, and even just knowledge about country of origin information for you to understand uh, how to actually dig out the need of the person before you can actually address it. And so that's, you know, something that I I profoundly understood in my years of practice. And I realized that the only way that we can, you know, expand this type of service in Hong Kong by educating lawyers to look at things in a more holistic manner is to set up this type of practice. And then conversely, I remember working with social workers or mental health experts that tried to give uh, um, my clients advice about, you know, how to deal with their situation. But that type of advice may be um, contradictory to my legal advice. And I just thought it was so frustrating to have Mm. different professionals tell you different things. And I can only imagine how much more frustrating it is for the clients. So I just, you know, I just thought, you know, we really need to cut through this, um, frustration for vulnerable individuals and just try to provide, you know, holistic, um, sensible, practical advice to them that addresses all the different parts of their their needs. Um, Ultimately, that's what um, drove me to to do this. And and I, you know, it's one thing to have different um, facilities out there. It's another thing to have all of them really learn from each other uh, intimately on a day-to-day basis. That's what I really see. And and I have a real passion to um, expand uh, this type of model, not just for the refugee population, but for any vulnerable community, because I I see this type of need across the board in so many um, areas. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think the service model really shows like it takes different stakeholders, organizations really working together hand in hand to create um, changes for these vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about like different challenges that refugees, asylum seekers um, face in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. On the policy front, um, what do you think are some of the policy changes that's needed in Hong Kong to really support these refugees and asylum seekers more? Oh, um, there's quite a few areas, but one of the critical areas is that we need to have a better system to figure out what to do with successful claimants. Because there's actually quite a number of successful claimants in Hong Kong who are unable to resettle to another country. We're talking about a couple dozen up to maybe one, two hundred people. Um, the, this group of people, you know, they, they're already it's already confirmed that they cannot be returned to their countries. Uh, they probably, you know, also have gone through very traumatic experiences. And there's a serious need for them to move on with their lives and rebuild, rebuild their lives. A lot of them have a lot to give. You know, there's a real energy in there that they're looking to be productive again, be a useful person again. Um, and unfortunately, we we don't have a policy to allow them to work or uh, to allow them to have a Hong Kong ID. Uh, we we need them to prove that they're um, destitute or unable to feed themselves or breaking down before we we provide any assistance to them. So so there's there's a real problem there. Uh, I think it's a policy that um, deals with a short term uh, need to dispel people or discourage them from coming to Hong Kong, but it doesn't sufficiently look at the interests of the individuals who really need us to assist them. I think that's that's the, one of the big problems. I understand the need to you know, stem uh, unwanted immigration, but we do need to balance that properly. Um, and then uh, processing of asylum claims. Um, I think that there's a need for us to do it in a much more uh, humane manner. A lot of times, um, a lot of claimants, we especially, and this is increasingly the case, they're actually detained in facilities. So, you know, they can't access the internet. They can't go and contact and find witnesses or find materials and evidence to support their claims. Um, and so they actually go through the entire screening process in a way that it's really stacked against them. Um, and I have real concerns that this would cause a lot of unfair unfairness um, and unsafe decisions as well. So um, I think a lot of thought has to be put into how do we deal with detained individuals um, to ensure that they can actually properly make a claim? Uh, And also just a question, do we actually need to detain them or are there alternatives? I I mean, there there are various things, but those are probably the top things on my mind. Mm, Yeah, I think we discussed a lot about like what you think we can potentially do on the policy front. And this actually perfectly leads me to the last question. If there's just one thing that the local Hong Kong population can do to really support the refugees and asylum seekers community in Hong Kong, what can we do? Um, I think that I I would really love for um, the Hong Kong population to um, know more about the individual stories to know more about um, the genuine claimants' uh, backgrounds, what happened to them, where they came from. And once you know that, to try to um, help um, spread stories around town, 
you know, to so that everyone will we have to turn the tide against this idea that they're all economic migrants. Um, we need to know that there are people who have gone through traumatic, traumatic histories um, and they need to have new opportunities. They need to have new lives. And, you know, globally, um, everybody as, 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 you know, around the world, there are refugees from different regions and everyone has a responsibility to help provide them with a second chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not for one country more than another. I think, you know, everyone just does whatever they can. So, you know, I think we just need to try to be um, humane, practical. Um, but, you know, and all of that just starts with just at least knowing um, who they are. Um, I think that's what I have, um, what what I believe everyone can do. Mm, yeah, just one last follow up question on that, because I think what you mentioned is great. Like we should definitely just be more open minded and learn more about refugees. But the mm-hmm. key question is, where can we start? Is there any like recommendation you have or suggestion of how people can first get to know more about refugees in the first place? Yeah, uh, well, it's a good question. And I know even though I said that just now, that it is actually difficult to know refugees. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, the nature is that a lot of them have histories that they are afraid of telling people about. You know, it could be that there are people looking to harm them and they need to keep whatever happened to them a secret. Um, But, you know, having said that, there's still plenty out there uh, who are able to share what happened to them. Um, And, you know, a lot of them will be happy to share that in safe environments. So there are some news out there, some news articles. And I wonder if maybe you guys can share some links to some uh, stories about genuine claimants, maybe Mm -hmm. to your podcast. Um, And uh, the other thing is, you know, there are some organizations out there um, that are wonderful, like Christian Action. There's a center for refugees that, you know, a drop-in center for refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, There's um, RUN, RUN. um, There are there's um, grassroots organizations, there's branches of hope, um, various churches have um, refugees um, as part of their, their congregation, so, so people actually get to know them personally as well. So mm-hmm. if you do have the time and opportunity, um, going to these places to volunteer um, provide you with an amazing insight into um, what, what they're all about. Uh, and you can get to meet them, some of them personally. Um, with with my organization, uh, Dignity Institute, we we jump right into professional services. So so there's not so much like a drop in center, um, but yeah, from time to time we do look for people to coach um, as clients with some professional skills, or maybe um, we have education programs where we help uh, individuals to make applications to go to universities and things like that. So you know there are there are volunteer ring opportunities. You just you know reach out, say what you want to do, and I I'm pretty sure that I can help you hook you up with the right person. And, mm. and I believe there's all the NGOs around town will be very pleased to do that. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. Um, other than all the NGOs you mentioned, um, we'll definitely look out for um, HADI programs as well um, and see how we can continue to really support the refugee and asylum seeker community in Hong Kong. Thank you so much, Patricia, for your time. It was our honor having you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support the Hong Kong refugee community, please consider donating to Ventures of Hope through our fundraising campaign at give.asia.statelesscampaign. 
Follow us on Instagram at Favorite Stories for more updates.